Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to this week's edition of Conversations in QA with industry leaders are thinkings. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, Adam Pawatic, who are, as you may be familiar, the host of the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Our guest today is an individual by the name of Daniel Arinovich. He is the CEO and managing partner of Forestgate, which is a sort of a newly created private equity, private debt firm. So we're kind of interested to have this conversation today with Daniel just to talk about, you know, what it's like coming into the industry or starting a new entity within the industry and just what that, uh, what that process looks like. Daniel's got to clearly, you don't just pick up and start a private equity, private debt firm with no experience. So of course, he's got long history of, of experience in our industry. And we're going to talk about that and talk about how it translates into such an um, you know, opportunity for you to start with Forestgate. So Daniel, thanks for coming on. Appreciate you having, appreciate you coming to talk with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate the interest. So, you know, Daniel, we always do this. We always look backwards first. Let's establish, you know, what your history is like and, and what your expertise is. So maybe just take us back to how and why you got into commercial real estate in the first place. Oh, that goes way back. Sure. I, uh, you know, that's interesting. I and mean, I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't expecting to go that far back. But uh, for me, real estate always, was always an interest. I didn't really put two and two together about the larger commercial real estate uh, industry until I was in business school and the light bulb just kind of went off. I always thought of real estate in the, in the conventional sense, you know, buying and selling houses and, you know, trading in the, in the residential sphere. And then the light bulb, like I said, just kind of went off while taking a course and while doing my MBA. And uh, I thought hey, this, is, this is exactly what I have to get into. I started my career early on uh, on the brokerage side, primarily doing investments. I have a background in, you know, finance, accounting and the bit. So it was, Focusing in on bigger portfolio investment sales, that kind of stuff, and then which then parlayed into uh, a longer career, more specifically in the uh, on the development side. Uh, all in now, I'm about 20 years in, in the business. Something about half of my career with uh, with a company called First Golf, uh, part of the Great Golf Group of companies, and then half of my career with uh, with Dream, more in in both capacities, focusing more on uh, on the development side of the business. Well, let's talk about that uh, a little bit. You, you kind of glossed over your dream. I mean, you were the chief development officer yeah. when you left, which is uh, you know a pretty great accomplishment in its in its own right. But I have always said that all, or maybe maybe close to all, maybe not all, but most real estate people when they're in large institutions do have a little daydream about going out and doing their their own their own baby, their own thing. And you've done that, and you left uh, you know a, a great company with, from a from a great role. So can we talk a little yep. bit about you know the decision making went into that you know the the yep. leap of faith for sure for sure I uh, no it's it, it, yeah I'm not not glossing over anything at all I mean I've been uh, I've been incredibly blessed um, to have had just wonderful mentors and to work with incredible teams over the course of my career uh, as I mentioned the first half with the folks at at First Gulf we were really pioneering a lot of merchant development work at that time and doing a lot of, you know, transit-oriented development, suburban office, adaptive reuse, the Toronto Sun building, uh, East Harbor, uh, and the whole bit, uh, you know, the early days I was involved with the, the Global Mail Center. And then that kind of morphed into the latter half of my career when I was, when I was at Dream, you know, working with, uh, with Michael and with, with tremendous people. And yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. If, uh, Dream, it's just it's an incredible institution doing incredible things and things with, with tremendous social impact and touch right across in municipalities right across the country. 
And so my portfolio was was pretty broad based, and you know I saw a lot. And I think that over the course of my career, I've been blessed to have seen a lot and a lot of diversity, whether it's you know, master plan, large master plan communities, uh, you know, housing, retail, commercial, affordable housing, you know, big remediation projects, super tall towers. So it, it, it's really been a, a, a wide and and deep career over the last uh, over the last number of years. And um, I don't think it's a daydream really per se in terms of, you know, people in, in institutions and, and the like, and, you know, dreaming about setting shop and, and the whole bit to tell you the truth. I think, I think the pandemic was a, was a game changer for a lot of people. And I don't think that those in, in more senior positions are, you know, are exempt from that. And uh, I can tell you over the, la- over the course of the summer, I think I started to look at myself and said to be very blunt and honest. I think that you know, I think the vast majority of people were kind of looked at themselves to say, like, where exactly am I in, in my life and my career and what stages and, what, you know, how am I going to live my life moving forward and the whole bit? What am I going to be doing? Am I living my, you know, what can I offer? And my, am I doing it with purpose and, and, and the whole bit? And uh, to be blunt, I think for me personally, it was about recognizing where I was and, you know, what skills and experiences I, I was able to, I've been able to gather over the years and, you know, what direction I'm going, I was going to be able to, to put them in and into. And um, for myself, it was uh, wanting to work alongside more developers and to bring the experiences that, that I've seen in the years that, uh, and, and in my travels and in, in the markets that I've been in to help them. And then on the flip side, to work with investors to also provide comfort and security in, in around their investments, primarily on, on the equity side for, for developments as, you know, the appetite for, for yield is growing, uh, you know, increasingly more competitive. So that was, really the, that was really the genesis of it. And I would say that in the earliest days of the, I mean, none of us have crystal balls in around this, uh, this pandemic, but um, there was just something that I could say to you that, I kind of felt it was going to go on for a lot longer than it would shorter. And um, I felt as though the knee jerk was going to be into the periphery and that the you know the people that were doing work in outside of the urban core would be, would be benefiting quite a bit. I just didn't know to really to what extent. And I think that it's been proven out. And uh, I do have a feeling that it's going to continue on for, for some time. That the foundations are there for it to continue on for some time. You know, uh, Daniel, I think there's a lot of our viewers and listeners that, you know, are always trying to plan out their careers in some form or fashion. Um, Adam and I know different, of course. And, and you were well positioned, right? At your role at, at Dream, you know, you, you probably had created a platform or a springboard to go in multiple directions. You know, one direction could have been, you know, more institutional, you know, from a, you know, an Oxford or a Brookfield or some more of a global, you know, management investment strategy sort of employment opportunity. And or, of course, the direction that you went, which is more sort of niche, uh, smaller entrepreneurial. Did you always know kind of deep inside it was to go entrepreneurial and kind of run your own shop, and kind of kind of not be your own boss, but kind of, you know, start something from the ground up? Or did you have to balance that? Like, do I want to go, you know, big ma- major global institution or do I want to go, you know, the direction that you ultimately chose? That's a great and uh, and and a very as, as existential question for sure. I've seen both sides, so I would say that you know the the first Gulf that you know now in 2021, um, you know with the work that's been done in in with with East Harbor and a lot of their other developments and the whole bit. I mean, I think that when I was there, it was a you know it was a far smaller, nimbler 
a kind of more intimate type of shop. And then I've seen, you know, I've seen the other side where I've, you know, worked in multiple markets right across the, the country and led teams and, and incredible people on the whole. But I think that, you know, if you're asking me from a personal perspective, yeah, I think that there's, there's a magic in being in a sort of a more intimate setting with, um, with people who are ex- who, who had similar experiences that you do. And, and within the partnership group, I've reconnected with some folks who have done some incredible work with over the years as well. And so for me at this juncture in my life, that was one that was more attractive. And second, I would say that I've kind of been somebody that's never strayed away from, from challenges personally. And there was just something about the challenge of um, starting something from scratch, which was, which was really appealing to me. And, uh, which is something that I just kind of wanted to, uh, which is something I wanted to take on and, and feel as though, feel as though I was able to do it. I think it's, it's a real, it's a real test to yourself, uh, personally to kind of really make yourself, you know, to be something in a kind of a vulnerable state to some extent and, uh, and, and go and give it a shot. Yeah. I, I, nice. A great answer. And I, I just find that question so fascinating. You know, Adam and yeah. I are fortunate enough to work for a company that's still entrepreneurial, you know, two private sure. owners effectively, but we're big, right? We're, you know, over a thousand yeah, employees yeah. and, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars under administration. I've yet to ever come across a situation where the answer to why can't I do that is, well, that's just our policy, which I, I suspect as you get into larger and larger and larger organizations, you hit that red tape where uh, there's just no way to make pragmatic decisions because yeah. you're stuck with just policy. And, and I, I'm maybe reading between the lines of what you just said, but going the other direction, which you've done, you make your own yeah. policy and you, those pragmatic decisions aren't questioned because there is you know, nobody else to question them ultimately. So yeah. uh, I, I yeah. probably align with you in that, in that respect. Hello. I just add to that. I say that. Uh, look, I mean, to say that you know, Dream for sure is not that type of organization. It was started by a by a founder with a tremendous amount of entrepreneurial vision, and uh, who's embedded that into every person that's there. In, in addition to you know, fostering a culture of of respect and doing good. So I think that if anything, for me. It was almost like my cup was too full. <laughs> I think it was like, okay, where do I, where do I go and, and like where do I go and, and and take that now, right? And so to answer your question, I, I don't think that that alignment would have been with another institution. I think that going back to what I was saying originally, it's kind of going well. How can I help ABC builder who may have a great project, who may be starting up, who may be doing some interesting things, and how do we you know take him to the next level and. Uh, and uh, and make sure that he's delivering on on or he or she or you know or, or is 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 delivering on it accordingly. Yeah, well, uh, that's a, that's probably a good point to make, Daniel. Because if Adam and I have been lucky enough to interview Michael Cooper before, and and I totally get, and I've seen him on panels, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that that guy just bleeds entrepreneurialism, right? Like he's never going to start creating policy for the sake of policy. So I totally get that. So you've been kind of you know raised in that environment. So I, I'm not surprised you're kind of attracted to to doing your own thing. Uh, and Adam and I will probably align with you on that. The next question, and just for our listeners, like we're going to get to investment thesis. I think we're kind of heading there now, and just kind of what the strategy of of, for, of, of sorry of Forest and 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 what it is that you're really trying to do. You know, Daniel, before we get into the investment thesis and just kind of the strategy of you know going forward, maybe just talk about the formation of what you've created and and how did it come about? Like, I mean, like you said, you you you, you were clearly attracted to going sort of an entrepreneurial route you know just pick up the phone and start calling people or did you did it was it kind of happenstance what was the story behind you ending up with your partners and the investment group that you've now created 
how did you all kind of yeah. find each other? I, I mean, it's a great, great question. So I would say, I mean, it was something that's been percolating since the start of the pandemic. You talk about an, an investment thesis. It was kind of more of an, an investment awareness, I'd say. I'd say that, um, as, as I mentioned, you know, I, I just felt as though you, you were, that this activity in the periphery was going to be, you know, it was going to, was going to be growing. And, uh, I kind of wanted to get ahead of it. I think what hit me like a ton of bricks was I heard, the, I heard the term K-shaped, uh, the K-shaped recovery for the first time. I'd never heard that, that term before. I think it was like, I think it was Steve Pelosi or, or, or brought it up somewhere. And it's kind of like, if you look at the textbook definition, it's, it, it's like some companies will, will thrive or individuals will, will thrive and some will take a little bit longer, but it's other, it's kind of like some are going to actually survive and some are going to die too. Right. And I think that, you know, for myself, I, I was thinking about it saying like, like on what side of that K do I, do I want to be relative and where do I see things and where do I see things going? So, um, you know, started canvassing the market, which, you know, whether, whether you're just starting out in your career or if you're going through the same transition or if you're just trying to get perspective, I mean, I'd be encouraging people as their home and, and, you know, using this time accordingly to, to, to do it and came across, as I mentioned, some, some old colleagues that, you know, had the same sort of perspective in terms of where they felt the, where they felt the economy was going and, and identified a certain need that was in the market. So we really just put put our heads together and figured out a, a venture and a structure between us that uh, that we thought could work. And um, and we see, you know, the, the initial response has been very strong. And um, you know, we, we, we hope to to service a certain point in the market. All of us have significant experience significant experience in the development realm. And um, on the placement side, I would say it helps us to be more nimble and strategic. And then also on the servicing side, it helps us to make sure that we're effective and that we're delivering the results that we say that we're going to deliver at the end of the day as well. That was basically the high level kind of genesis of it. Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of where, that's where, that's how we ended up where we're at today. I think you've already uh, partially dipped your toe into the, you know, investment thesis part of the, of the, the enterprise, but let's jump right into it. Cause now you have this group of qualified people, you've got the, the will and the resources and you're, you're putting wheels in motion. You know, what's, what's the big idea? You know, you're about to stake your reputation and your future on this. So, so what is the big idea? What's the investment thesis here? No, no, no pressure. I don't mean to dial it up. I better not screw that up or else I got to put my, uh, or else I got to, uh, I got to get my resume out there. Look, I, I think it's, it's what, I think it's an example of one of those things where we're, we've all got to be looking at, at, at the bigger picture in terms of, in terms of what's going on right now. Like, I think that like my, just mine or our personal views that there's, there's a big rebound story in it's for our province. I think that it's kind of a, to be cliche about it, it's kind of a magical time for our region to be pretty frank about it. I mean, you have, you have a combination of, you know, historical infrastructure investment. I mean, the Ontario government just announced their budget, like a hundred billion dollars next year for, for priority projects, including, you know, things like the Hamilton uh, light rail and connectivity. They're still planning out how to get network, you know, rail networks up to, to, to North Bay and, 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 and another kind of, you know, townships. Uh, accordingly, you've got after a, a delayed pause over the course of 20, uh, 2020, when we had the lowest immigration growth levels, we're, we're picking right back up. And I think that the, I think that we've committed to like something like a million and a half immigrants over the next three years. I mean, it's a massive amount of people that are going to be coming back into, into the country. In January, we're all, we've already seen that we, we started to achieve more of a, a, a normalized kind of pre-pandemic number that's there. 
got big policy changes that are happening or expedite planning decisions such as MZOs. I mean, they're, they're, they're controversial, but they're not just for residential project, but also for, you know, transportation, for industrial, so on and so forth to get permits into the market faster. You know, right now, I think Canada is something like 64th in the world, according to OECD, in terms of getting a, you know, an average industrial permit into, into the ground and all of it. So, and then on the planning side too, I, you know, the, the municipalities, and again, this kind of parlays into work that I've seen over the years. I mean, there's in greenfield developments, we're just we're seeing the emphasis on better planning. I mean, you, you, you know, you point out to something like uh, what's going on in Innisfil right now with Orbit as an example that Partisans is doing. I mean, it's it's incredible. When I, when I saw it for the first time, I thought it was I, I thought it was just like a like a like like a concept, but but no, like it's an actual living, breathing document that, that people are opining on and trying to get into the market in order to get people to live better and to and to interact with one enough with one another better. And you know, homes are being constructed with better environmental standards and, and, and the whole bit. You know, also, you know, we're seeing just a lot of debate about what the future is going to look like. And there's a, I always feel as though the debate is are the cities going to make this big comeback or is everybody going to work from home is in, in, in stay in the, in the periphery and, and the like, and I, myself and our group just doesn't see it that way. I think that we kind of see that you need both working in parallel, that both are going to be working in parallel, I should say, and, and that's going to result in more of an exponential growth. So whether or not we, you know, people are going to come back and how they're going to come back in the offices is to be determined. But I mean, just through venues such as this, I mean, we've determined, we've, we've, we've shown that people can, work remotely, they're going to want to work, they're going to want to maintain some element of it. I mean, there's all kinds of studies and discussion points about what the work week is going to end up looking like in, in the future and, and the like. But people have been migrating to towns as well. I mean, you know, we've been tracking the amount of people that have left Toronto per se, but they're not even tracking the people that have left from a Brampton or from a, you know, from a Pickering or, or and like have gone into, into other places as well. So this migration that's happening, this entrenchment that's happening as well throughout the city, all of which I'd say points into that strengthening into our region. Massive amounts of, of savings. Uh, and right now, you know, over the course of the last year, I don't know, it's like a hundred billion dollars or something like that in additional savings that have been realized by Canadian families. It's been a massive increase in disposable income. All to, so there's been the transfer of wealth that's going to end up happening from, from the baby boomers and, and the like. So I would say that all these things lay out this incredible foundation. And, you know, and together with vaccine optimism and, you know, God willing, we'll see when, when the budget rolls out in a couple of weeks with good government policy and the like. like I think we're in, we're in for a pretty significant, we have the makings for a very significant boom for the long term. And, um, you know, we're, we're hoping that, that that's what ends up happening. I, this, is, uh, this is one of my favorite conversations, Daniel. So let's keep going. I have two questions for you. One's really you easy. Like One's, I bet you say that's all I guess. Yeah. yeah. No, honestly. <laughs> One's really, I think this is one of the most interesting conversations we can have in the commercial real estate community right yeah. now, and, and we'll get there. The first question is not necessarily on that. First question is, what's MZO or MZO? I don't know what that is. Can oh, you just a, explain that to us? Yeah, yeah. so it's a, it's a zoning order, basically, where the where the province can can expedite. You know, and there has to be alignment. I mean, there's, it's been controversial because, you know, it's been used to some extent to expedite you know, development projects, but in, in other, in other uses, it's also been used to expedite, you know, go stations and, 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 you know, affordable housing projects and industrial and, and, and bits. So it's, uh, so it's not something that should necessarily be seen as a negative, but rather as a recognition that, that we need to be getting things to market quicker. So again, you know, when you talk about the, you know, the investment 
thesis, look, going into the pandemic, everything was tight. Like, it's like, I don't even know if people remember February 2020, where, it, where it, rental vacancy was like, a, you know, residential vacancy res- it was, was like at 0%. Office effectively was at 0%. Industrial was at 0%. You had, you know, the, the, the housing market was hot, both for single family homes and the condo market and, and the like. So all these things like, it gives me, like, it makes me feel good that, yeah, look, it's like this pandemic sucks. We're all just sitting here waiting, going like, like, just everyone gets shots in arms. Let's all get back at it and, and the whole bit. But our fundamentals are pretty good for, you know, to, to bounce back. But deeper than that, like, there's these big structural things that are happening that are going to help us for the longer term as, as well. And so, you know, when you kind of really add all these things up, like it, it's going to be pretty meaningful. And the biggest thing, I mean, look for you know, for on the on the on the housing side, I mean, there's not a day that doesn't go by that doesn't go by that doesn't talk about that the you know the affordability crisis and you know and, and how expensive it is to to live not just in Toronto but in in the greater region and, and the whole bit. But big thing is is supply. Big thing is just getting the things into market. The big thing is getting through trades to, that that can actually build it and 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 build it on time and on budget and. Uh, and uh, and without disruptions like we're having right now in the lumber industry, or you know, having or, or the or the evergreen and the Suez Canal and, and the whole bit. Like I mean, these are big fundamental things that when you're running so tight, they're massively disruptive. I mean, like it's uh, they're all big things for you know for consideration right now. I think I'm gonna lob, put a, throw a lob ball up there for you to spike home, Daniel. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I'm doing that. And this is, this is, I think, the crux of the conversation. And you mentioned it, right? There's this interesting duality now where we've got sort of the work-from-home cohort and the in-office cohort. And I think there's, there's going to be some sort of interesting hybrid. Presumably, that sort of ancillary or accelerates a bit of urban sprawl, naturally, right? Because there are people that are moving, and we're seeing it, right? House prices in the 905 are growing way faster than they are in the 416 or you know, suburban areas all across the country are growing more quickly as a result of people saying, I'm just not going to be back in the office nearly as much as I used to. Suburban sprawl historically has been seen as almost a negative, right? Because now you're creating instances where individuals have to commute for an hour and a half or two hours each way. They spend 17 hours of their day not in their homes and the rest of the time, you know, cooking dinner and sleeping. So that, that's not necessarily what you want as a, in, a, in a community. But that work from home environment, if you're working from home and you're you're in the office two days a week, but working from home three days a week, you're actually in your community five days a week, even though you might be an hour and a half commute away, you're spending way more time now in that sort of suburban community. So I think this is, I think I'm I'm giving you a law ball here. Like, how would you deploy capital then into those communities to really generate yield? And what would you do to make sure that you're fostering you know, the, the proper investment strategies and, and generating a, a strong community. Oh my God, I'm going to spike this so hard. I'm going to spike this. I'm going to spike this one so hard. What I'd say, I, look, coming back to it again, when you like, I'd say just in that, um, you know, if I can unpack that question statement a little bit, when you talk about urban sprawl, you know, as well, like you're, you're, you're making this assumption that 100% of the people are commuting from somewhere outside always to Toronto, Right. We're not talking about the people that are going from Kitchener to Milton. We're not talking about the people that are going from Cambridge to Brampton. We're not talking about the people that are going from Peterborough to Pickering. You know, this week we they just announced that Brampton um, is going to uh, is going to have a medical school. That's a like I mean that's a that's a pretty big deal. I mean, I grew up in Toronto, you know, downtown Toronto proper, and like like 
you know, growing up, you would have never thought that things of that nature would be going on in other municipalities. You only thought of them as being kind of in, in, in downtown Toronto. So there's like a big seismic shift. So, you know, from what we're seeing is that there's this maturity that's happening. You've got real regional infrastructure, with, which, is, which is taking place. You have a desire, an existential desire of people that are searching for purpose and saying like, look at like, I'm going to go and be somewhere where I can be on my mountain bike. I can be on my kid's soccer pitch. I like to ski. I like to just go for walks. I like to do whatever it is. If I work in downtown Toronto and I want to live near the Caledon Go, or if I want to live in Wasega Beach, where it's an hour to get into, into Toronto and the whole bit, all, all of this is basically, you know, one big suburb or it's either a suburb of, of Toronto proper, or it goes into, you know, the regional discussion where you have the maturity of a lot of these smaller cities and townships that, that are starting to come of age, which is incredible. And it's actually really good for, for us. Um, you know, if we want, we, Toronto's always been this aspirational city that's always looked to a New York and a Paris and a Berlin and so forth. But you know, if you're in New York, you can, you can live in Poughkeepsie, you can live in New Haven, you can live in Scranton, you can live in all these places and you train in and, and kind of live your life and do what it is that you want to do. But you have that that mobility and that sense of infrastructure. And I'd say that here within our region, like we have incredible green space, we have incredible nature, we've got incredible access to water and, um, and leisure and the like. And it's something that I think it's a, it's a trend that's going to continue. You know, CMHC this week flagged overheated market in Tilsonburg. And I'm going like, like, like why is Tilsonburg even on, on their radar? Right. But people are going there because they, they may be working in London. It could be, you know, medical professionals that, that are going into, into the London market. And like, so, you know, coming back to your question about, uh, about the returns, the deal sizes are getting bigger. The land acquisitions are more significant. The costing, you have got to really know your costing. As I mentioned to you, I mean, lumber, cost of lumber has doubled, depending on when you bought it, probably over the last 12 months, maybe two to three times, between all the other components that you're, you've got that you need for a house. It's probably added 20 to 30% on your cost relative to the start of the pandemic. So, like anything, I mean, a lot of us, you know, are familiar with with Toronto and the rules of thumb in and around, you know, costing cap rates, ins and outs, and and, and the whole bit. So our focus, are, you know, are, we're going to be involved in various asset classes. We're most comfortable, I'd say, in the in the housing space, and uh, and like so, that's where we're going to spend a little bit of our time in, at, at the outset, and then as the business naturally matures, start to focus in on other on other verticals accordingly. What's well, that did point? I, did, actually, I spike, did, did, did I spike that? Okay. That's actually the lead of the question I, I wanted to ask you. Yeah. So, so I buy into the investment thesis that you know that the, the growth the growth power of Toronto is driving a two hour radius around uh, the actual city core where we're going to see you know outsized growth. And for anybody not from the uh, Ontario area, Tilsonburg is an hour and a half from downtown Toronto, and probably most famous twenty years ago for tobacco farming. You know, and they're experiencing a wave of residential value growth. Yeah, exactly. Stop and Tom wrote a song about it. Uh, check out YouTube if uh, you want to hear it. So let's say that I, you know, I'm here. I'm a day one investor. I, you know, I believe in the in the program. But I say to you, look, I want to invest with you day one. I want to invest, you know, year five, year ten. You mentioned that the immediate plan is to capture it through a low rise residential. But as, as you grow and the wave continues, how do you plan on you know continuing to capture that growth and participating in the upside? 
for for on on the trends you're talking about? Like just in terms of in terms no, of adding the, verticals, uh, yeah, about, the, yeah, verticals specifically. Yeah. Well, look at. I mean, we're we're tr- we're tracking growth and we're tracking the markets that are that are growing right now, and um, rooftops inevitably lead to more growth. And I would say that uh, for myself and the the rest of the partners included, we're all fairly well versed in in different asset classes. And um, you know, I, I don't think that it would take much for us to to pivot accordingly. I think it's you know to be. Look, we're we're in early stages. I mean, it's been a month. I think that you know, I, I think that we we don't want to say that we're involved in everything right right off the outset. We're looking at everything. I'd say, but for the for the time being, I think we're we're really kind of honing in on equity investments primarily on on the residential side, and then it's going to grow naturally over time, and we'll and we'll pivot accordingly. Before uh, before we went record, uh, Daniel sent me a list of things he wanted me to say. So I just so it doesn't sound like I'm just tuning his horn. He, he was the one that, that fed me all this, uh, all this information, hence the, the lob I gave him the spike. Uh, and what I'm about to say, because, you know, Daniel, I'm, I'm talking this through or thinking this through as we're having this conversation. And, you know, maybe it's obvious, but it didn't seem obvious to me until we started talking about how, you know, if you've got communities that used to be predominantly bedroom communities, which is what we used to classify them as, where it was five days a week, they were getting up at 530 in the morning, and jumping in their car or the goat train or whatever, heading downtown, they'd be back home at 8 p.m., make dinner, go to bed, get up in the morning. So you had you had people living in your communities, but they're only there for, you know, 48 hours, the weekend, really, right? From Friday night till Monday morning. And then for the most part, they're gone. With the work from home environment, with this flexibility that COVID has created, there isn't nearly as much of a draw to send your employees five days a week downtown, be at office, 8.30, can't leave until 5.00. Um, so you're going to have these communities now where there's just more people regularly sitting around working, right? But I mean, everybody, I think everybody now knows, like, if it's three o'clock and your kids need to go pick up from school, you, you kind of head out. And now you're out in the car. Okay, well, I'm going to head to the retail center and go do some grocery shopping or go to the ice cream store, or whatever it is, right? There's just more activity going on. And I think we all feel it, whether you live in Etobicoke, where I live, or you live in Tilsonburg, right? So is that ultimately the thesis in, in a nutshell? And then if you're building homes, I think you've said it, you build roofs and then by inevitably, then you need retail communities. You need uh, maybe some small office or, or whatever, right? Like is that, is, is that the sort of the three, five, 10 year strategy? Yeah. First of all, I, I don't recall Sandy anything. Second of all, I'm, I'm in Etobicoke. We could have, we could have done this in my backyard too. I didn't even know that. Yeah, like, like, when you, like when you say thesis, like I'm kind of visioning, you know, like a like a big chalkboard and a lot of you know algebra, beautiful mind kind of kind of stuff. And I, like that's where I say it's kind of a, a bit of an, an awareness. And I say, yeah, look for me, like I, I took up road biking during the pandemic, and I joined four cycling clubs. On all four of the cycling clubs, there's a lot of professionals, including you know real estate folks and, and other you know industry types that I just generally like being around and spending my day with, and 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 the, and the whole bit. Whether it's been road biking or you know or, or hiking or whatever it is, I, I, I think that people are searching for that sense of connection and they're finding it within their communities, which is actually a very good and healthy thing, which wasn't really existing to the same tune prior to the pandemic. And there's nowhere to go and eat. There's nowhere to go and drink. All the restaurants are, are either shut or closed or gone for good. 
it'll come back. We all know that it's going to come back. It's going to take time. You know, it's going to take time for businesses to to feel confident that they want to reinvest their money into into those industries. It's going to feel, take time for people to feel comfortable being around other people as well. And people are getting comfortable in their current environments. I mean, if you've moved, it's going to be tougher for you to leave. And people are searching. I mean, homes are being built now with two offices to, to accommodate multiple professionals that are living in, in, in the homes and, and the well. People are searching for smaller office spaces and the like, you know, suburban markets, from my understanding, I haven't been this close to it over the last while, but I understand that everyone is coming up with suburban office strategies they may not be taking more space. They might be giving more space back downtown, but they are looking for for alternates in order to keep their staffing happy. Recognizing the fact that you know that work from home is going to exist in some shape or form for some time and period for the future. So, I don't know if that's answered the question, but you know, I think all those things in combination with a lot of those big fundamental, these big fundamental pushes, whether it's infrastructure investment, transit investment, uh, you know, immigration, um, you know, policy. So all, like, they're, they're all kind of putting, moving into a direction that, that points to a stronger region and stronger growth for us all, which is great. I've got uh, one more on investment. Then we're talking about capital raise and deployment. Okay, so Daniel, the last question on investment, I promise, and then we'll, we're, we're going to move on. You've got your, your the, the, the beautiful mind whiteboard that you referenced. Let's say we're chalkboard. just ignoring all that. Chalkboard, chalkboard. Sorry, that's old school. <laughs> chalkboard. Let's say that uh, we're just going to ignore all that. And we're going to ignore the last 20 minutes of us uh, asking you about uh, why you believe you're going to make some money. What's the target yield on your year one, your three? What are you looking to to generate for your investors here? A great question. It's you know funny. It, you, I would say you know my my rule of thumb when I started out uh, in the business was you had to build to 150 basis points over the cap rate. That was like the standard. You know, there were tons of opportunities that were out there. We were constantly looking at you know new deals, but you know in different kind. Of, but it was you always had to be 150 basis points, and then it like starts to just compress and compress and compress over time. Your capital players in the markets made it obviously a lot more challenging in the development in the development space, particularly if you're you know in, in all asset classes right now. I mean, I would say that uh, I'd say general rule of thumb. I mean, like I think developers aren't willing to do much, you know, under a 20% plus IRR. I mean, like, I think that's, that's generally an, an accepted litmus test, I'd say. And then for investors would be, and they're taking on the lion's share of the risk, obviously the, they're finding the deal, they're, you know, they're cultivating it, they're overseeing it, they're driving it home and the whole bit. And then I'd say, you know, the, the investors are usually something in, something in the, something in the teens. I don't know. It could be in the mid teens, high teens, something like that, depending on, depending on where the overall project performs. You know, Daniel, Adam promised last investment question. So let's move on to capital deployment, if that's okay. You know, it, it goes without saying, this is the most liquid, you know, market we've seen in, in commercial real estate in pretty much everybody's lifetime. Uh, no matter how old you are, there's just so much money going around on the equity side, the debt side, just everywhere. How are you? And you've seen it, of course, working at Dream. And I know yeah. you're only a month in, so maybe you haven't been in any sort of positions where you're, you're bidding yet. But what is that strategy? Right? How, how do you go about finding those opportunities? I mean, you talked about a sort of a 20% IRR. And I know that's just a general number. Uh, but that's tough. If everybody's chasing 20% and somebody decides 18 and somebody decides 15, you're going to lose out. So what is that strategy for you? Yeah, I would say, you know, for us, um, we're, you know, I think we are going to be playing in a, in a, in a, in a space where we're, we're looking at larger 
initially larger residential land development and, and housing plays. Sorry, Dana, just, I mean, give, don't, I'm not going to hold yeah. you to it, but quote, is, are you talking yeah. $5 million, 500? It'd be north of that. Yeah, yeah, some, somewhere in between that. Somewhere, somewhere in between those two. Somewhere in between those two numbers, I'd say. And I'd say that the, you know, the players that are in, in that space are, you know, there 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 isn't a ton of them. And then both on the on the capital side, there aren't. You have to understand it as well. So I think that we're uniquely positioned to both source and to also provide advisory for for such accordingly. Well, let's talk as well about debt because you're going to be that is a component of your business. And obviously, there's a different uh, you know yield expectation there. But what do you envision for your deployment of of debt in your enterprise? I'd say that you know debt kind of. I'd say that debt. There's probably a lot more by way of uh, of benchmarks on on the debt side. I mean, if you're doing you know land loans and mes and and bridges and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think there's a lot of precedents that are out in the in, in the market and the whole bit. Anything that we do really just has to be complementary to the group and we're picking and choosing where where we deploy and how we deploy accordingly and, and with whom. Really, at, at the end of the day, so that probably doesn't give you much. Debt is going to be more of a secondary focus to us. Okay, it's meant to lead to projects that you want to be involved with, not uh, not its own standalone. That's right. Correct. Okay. And then for the projects that you would be taking on for your use of debt as opposed to deploying debt, what's your what's your debt strategy as a, as a user rather than uh, rather than a lender? Why are you asking, Adam? Why do you care? <laughs> do, you know, do you know someone? Believe it or not. Yeah, I know a couple of good guys. <laughs> one's got a beard and the other one's clean shaven. You should... Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard, I heard they're great. I heard they're great. Um, yeah, look, I, I think, like, I mean, with, I, I think again, coming back to it, the deal sizes are the deal sizes are, are, are getting bigger and bigger, and they're getting riskier from a, a construction perspective as well. So, I think there's always going to be opportunity to use to have multiple sources of capital. You were supposed to say first national, first national only, no other lenders. Single source. There you go to. Yeah, single source. <laughs> single source. That's it. That's it. Single source. Exactly. Yeah. While we're still on the topic of, of capital raise, you know, who, who are you looking to? What's, what's the profile of your investors, the people that uh, you know, see value in this and want to plug in somewhere yeah. between five and $500 million? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're, we're, we're speaking to a lot of institutions. I mean, the institutions typically haven't been heavily involved, I'd say, in the, the residential development space. I mean, obviously, it, it, the, the yield is obviously not there, but the reception has been has been pretty good right off the bat. I think that's going to be kind of our, our main, you know, main clients that we're going to be, you know, looking to, to, to do work with. So I think we want to try to be in a position where we can be be generating the opportunities that I don't think that I don't, I just don't think it would be on their radar. And uh, I think that we're pretty uniquely positioned to be able to generate those opportunities. So yeah, I think you can you 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 may see the institutions playing more in, in our space, which is great. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously from a from a yield perspective, you're likely to find more outside of uh, downtown core, and then just from a risk management perspective, the old uh, adage of not having all your eggs in one basket it could be a good counterbalance in a lot of larger portfolios to have exposure to what uh, you're offering. Yeah, yeah, you'll have look. You'll you, you know, if let's say let's say that you're you're you know you're building out a, a community with a thousand lots. I mean, those thousand those thousand rooftops are going to inevitably, at some point through your master plan, also have early stages of of multifamily rental, and then you'll you know you're already in the land market, so you're going to come across industrial and so on and so forth. So, you know, so I think that would that would if I was on the institutional side, I think that recognition is you know is probably something that's going to be attractive. They may have buckets of capital which are specific to 
to growth, to some kind of you know some kind of growth development for sales strategy, but then also uh, understanding our our group and our and our mo maybe it would be something that, that I think would be appealing to, to to be able to look to the future on as well. We've talked about the decision to start your own you know your own business. We've talked about the investment thesis in depth. We've talked about capital raise. We talked about who's going to be the investors. So you're here. It's happening. What's the actual operation of the company look like over the next, you know, to two years? What's the growth projections? You know, what kind of team do you plan on building? You know, the, the nuts and bolts of uh, operating a company. Yeah, yeah, it's that's you know, I think that goes back to kind of what we were chatting about, uh, chatting about earlier about whether you're going into the institutional side or whether you're going into something that that's smaller. With something, I, I mean, I do envision something that's smaller, tighter. I think that people who have been through who've had real experience on the development side. Like, I don't think that you can be on the equity side for developments unless you've actually sat with planning, unless you've met with the city, unless you've dealt with the constructors, unless you've you know dealt with things that have gone sideways and brought them back into line and understanding the risk components. So I think that we're, once we kind of focused in, I think we'll, we'll, we'll take a, a staged vertical approach to things and then be looking for the right individuals to, to lead verticals according whether they're going to be on the equity side and on the debt side. And then we'll see. I think time will tell in terms of how we, you know, how we separate and how we or combine them. But in all, I think we're, we'll be looking for kind of like-minded people who've, who are a little more weathered on the, on the, development, on the development side and who, who've seen some stuff that can be good people to watch over capital. You know, in those early stages of, you know, your adventure that you're, you're, you're partaking in, you know, have you had some, some thoughts or have you looked inwards on what kind of, you know, what kind of leader you want to be as the CEO, what kind of culture you want to foster in the group, you know, maybe just kind of talk about what it's like now to be kind of at the head of, of an organization. I mean, I think you're just a few employees today, but I'm assuming there's a growth trajectory where you're going to have many at one point in the future. And so what is the position? What is the strategy to build a really strong, attractive culture. Yeah, it's such it's such a it's such a great question. It's such an interesting question. I think I was blessed. I mean, I was absolutely blessed when I was at Dream to lead a lot of people in multiple markets across the country and work that's fairly intricate and difficult. So I would say that I'm lonely. If you want to ask me personally, I'm very lonely. It's me and Frank, and uh, <laughs> basically, it's you know, it's uh, you know, we've got we, we have a, we have a few partners, but otherwise, it's it's much quieter than than it was uh, you know at the at the outset. And sorry, when I was at uh, when I was at Dream, but look, I think that Dream ingrained in me a sense of of, of purpose and and um, wanting to you know lead with intention and to do right by people. So I think. To answer your previous question, I think we want to make sure that we're bringing the right people on and then giving people the right opportunities to succeed and to thrive and to live their lives and fulfill their careers with purpose. I think it's, it's something which I recognize for myself and something that I would probably want to pass on to other people that, that I surround myself with. I think that's, that's a great note to, to end on, you know, the, the leadership view. Uh, great question, Aaron, to, to end it off and great answer. Daniel. Before we sign off on this portion of the interview, I want to say thanks a lot for sharing your insight and your story. Very interesting. It'll be super interesting to see what you do with it uh, going forward. I'm sure we'll, we'll keep seeing uh, seeing you running into you and maybe talking to you about alone at some point, you know, as Aaron alluded to. 100%. I made notes already to call you on some stuff. Okay, great. For the Ref Club, thanks for putting this two together. It was another great thinking. And uh, with that, we're going to move into the question and answer period. Thanks, guys. 
Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Aaron and I digest the conversation that just happened. This was a particularly interesting conversation, I thought, because we're looking at you know an investment thesis that's not aligned with most of the people we speak with. Most people we speak with are urban core, four main food groups, which is a formula that works for sure, but you're also not getting yet any sort of premium returns for a lot of that kind of product especially if you're you know, clipping coupons. But this is interesting. You know, this, is, this is looking at a, a peripheral rim in terms of the, the you know, investment geography and the investment time horizon too. Like I, I think that, and not that I want to talk about having somebody back to the podcast in you know, five years, because that's a, kind of a long time frame to, to think about. But I would love to catch up with Daniel and speak to him when this company and concept is you know, moved beyond their, their kind of inception and launch stage, which is where they're at right now. Yeah, it's really such a, and we talked about it, right? It's it's scary, but the dream of a lot of real estate professionals to kind of take on that endeavor and go through the exercise of trying to figure it out, you know, all the road bumps he's going to come across, the challenge of raising the capital, finding the capital, hitting those yields. I don't think we've asked him exactly, but there's probably more sleepless nights than he expected than when he started the whole process. Yeah, especially coming out of you know a large institution like he did, it's a very different, uh, different, different lifestyle. Your days would look a lot different. But absolutely respect for picking you know an investment thesis and you know being a believer in the GTA as a whole. Like obviously he's not he's not targeting the downtown immigration, which you know that's not exactly a new concept for why investing in Toronto works. But to look at the data that shows that Toronto's sheer size. Is the, the the shockwave effect is rippling out into these smaller markets, and if you can get in front of it with a sizable amount of capital, you can look pretty sharp. You know, five ten years down the road, everybody's got concepts and ideas, but he's really putting his money where his mouth is and making a, a major a major play here. That's very cool. And you know, and if you're talking about five and ten year time horizons, yes, right now in COVID, obviously immigration is uh, seriously hampered, but by all accounts, we are going to play catch up in that front. Toronto will continue to be a huge success story for immigrants and people that benefit from it from the investment standpoint. And so, yeah, I think that he'll continue to, uh, he'll see success in this, I think. You know, it's funny. I, I hadn't put two and two together, but I was, I was talking to a friend of mine just a couple of days ago who recently bought a house in Toronto. And, and I think for the regular listeners know I've recently bought a house too. And we were kind of, I guess, probably just trying to give each other comfort that you didn't make a bad decision and you're, you're doing the right thing. But the, the conversation was just surrounding the, the health of the Toronto ec- ec- the economy, right? And I think that's what he's saying is, is it's just, it's, it's a bit insulated, right? Because you're not relying on any one sector. It's got a robust, obviously, finance, big medical, big tech. There's basically an attraction or a, a major player, a major player in every facet of the economy the immigration, the migration, the vibrancy of the downtown core, like there's just always going to be a pulse to the city. So I think that's just what he's saying is that there's, just, there's always going to be demand to come here. So why not get out ahead of it, find the yield before, you know, those. And, and the other thing that I think is really interesting is go back 50 years, look at the people that were buying and building in Mississauga. People probably thought, well, how the hell are you going all the way up to Mississauga? Like no one's ever going to want to live there. Those that were buying, you know, north of Shepherd, what the hell are you doing going north of Shepherd? That's going to be like, that's out in the boonies. Now Shepherd feels like the middle of the city, right? Like you could go another 20 kilometers north and never leave a urban area, right? So it probably makes perfect sense. It's just so hard to see that far out when you're you know, living in this sort of immediacy world. Well, Aaron and I both live very close to, to downtown Toronto, maybe, uh, maybe a 20-minute drive. 
But if you go back far enough, you know, in your land title registry, you're going to find that was a farm at some point. And it was probably 1920s, 1930s, something like that. I started getting converted to housing. That's one lifetime ago where people would have been farming the land that now people are paying such a, you know, a, a premium to be 20 minutes from downtown Toronto. Not that you want to invest in a 80 year time horizon, but it's not that long, you know, and obviously you don't need to wait for the full 80 years to realize it, but I don't think you're going to look too dumb in 20 years buying just the outer periphery of where well, and that's, continues to scroll. It, it's, a, it's a fine line, right? Like <laughs> 20 years is probably too long to start deploying capital today to start realizing returns. So where's the sweet spot, right? Where's, what's the right time versus the right investment to make the most amount of capital? So that's clearly what Daniel's trying to, or has figured out, it sounds like. Well, you mentioned as well, the big factor there, of course, with time horizons is red tape is a, a big factor. That's a very slow moving cog in the machinery of a, a growing city. And that will likely the biggest, you know, that'll be the biggest slowdown to realizing, you know, his returns is just working through that red tape for development. But I mean, all de- developers deal with it. I don't know how my patience would wear out to a, a thin little nub personally, but they all seem to do it. So, a, uh, you know, I know he can as well. Anyways, uh, Aaron, it's an interesting episode, and yeah, we'll, we'll say it now. Five years from now, we'll have him back on and, and talk about <laughs> all the realized returns and, and how that played out. And, or and or maybe, maybe 80 years. <laughs> yeah, and how we're such idiots for not investing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, he's looking for institutional capital. I don't think he wants us to chip in our, uh, you know, our paychecks. Uh, he'd, 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 take 20, he'd, take, he'd take 20 bucks here and there, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. That's all I've got. Everything yeah. in my wallet, yeah. you can have it. That's okay. your investment fund. <laughs> All right, everybody, thanks yeah. a lot for listening to, uh, to this episode. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.